Can supply chains be more sustainable without losing performance, efficiency, and resilience? It's possible with GEP. With strategy-managed services and AI-powered software, GEP helps hundreds of market-leading companies build sustainable supply chains that are cleaner, greener, and highly effective. Supply chains that are good for the planet and good for your business. GEP. Software. Strategy. Managed services. GEP.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. With two coups in the past two years, Mali is no stranger to upheaval. But sanctions imposed by a regional bloc intended to restore democratic order look likely to make a messy security situation messier and to entrench Russian influence in Mali. And nature might be beautiful, but in the hands of filmmakers, it easily becomes forbidding and dangerous. We examine a well-trodden genre with a newish name, eco-horror, whose message is evolving alongside the rise in environmental fears. First up, though. Britain's Prince Andrew, the Duke of York, has, in effect, been excommunicated from the royal family. The Queen's second son is being stripped of all military titles and royal charity roles. A royal source says he will also lose the use of his title, His Royal Highness. After years denying the accusations of abuse against him, today, any prospect of a return to public life for the Duke of York is over. The drastic demotion comes just 24 hours after a US court ruled his sex assault trial will go ahead. A civil case brought in America against the prince by Virginia Giuffre claims that he raped her as a teenager, knowing she was being trafficked by the disgraced and now deceased financier Jeffrey Epstein. The prince has always strenuously denied the charges, but the pressure on him has intensified since a, frankly, uncomfortable BBC interview in 2019. You were staying at the house of yes. a convicted sex offender. It was a convenient place to stay. Andrew has admitted to being close to Epstein's confidant, Ghislaine Maxwell, who was convicted last month of sex trafficking of minors. All this comes at a tricky time for the monarchy. This summer, the Queen and the nation will be celebrating her platinum jubilee, 70 years on the throne. The palace's decisive action in cutting off the prince reveals just how important it is for the family to protect the reputation and the legacy of the crown. So yesterday, Buckingham Palace confirmed that Prince Andrew, who is widely believed to be the Queen's favourite son, has been stripped of his last remaining official ties with royal life. Catherine Nixie is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. So in their brisk statement, they said that with the Queen's approval, the Duke's military affiliations and his royal patronages have been returned to the Queen. So he's now going to be defending this case as a private citizen. Most importantly of all, perhaps he is no longer to use, style himself, HRH, His Royal Highness, in any official capacity. So that is pretty much the end of Prince Andrew's time as an official royal prince. And so why did Buckingham Palace take this drastic step? So Virginia Giuffre has brought a case saying that she was sexually trafficked by the convicted paedophile Jeffrey Epstein as a teenager and that she was made to have sex with Prince Andrew. Now, there is a photograph that appears to show Prince Andrew with his arm around Virginia Giuffre. 
at this time. Prince Andrew says that he doesn't even remember meeting her and he doesn't remember that photo being taken and he denies all charges. And in a BBC interview, a famous BBC interview in 2019, he said Miss Jufre's memory that she danced with the sweating prince in a nightclub couldn't be true because of a condition that means he didn't sweat at the time. Because I um, had suffered what I would describe as an overdose of adrenaline in the Falklands War when I was shot at. Uh, and I simply, it, it, was, it, was, it was almost impossible for me to, to, to sweat. And the palace have done this now because Dufresne is bringing a case against Andrew in the US courts. It's a civil case, not a criminal case. And Andrew's lawyers had hoped to say that a prior settlement Miss Dufresne had made with Mr Epstein meant she wasn't able to bring the suit against him. But this week a judge has ruled that the case against Andrew can still proceed. And it's expected to take place towards the end of the year. And it seems that this has prompted the royal family to say enough is enough and cut ties with Andrew. And so about that trial, how will that play out? What's next? I mean, nobody knows what's going to happen, as in any trial, but the prince strongly denies the charges. However, legal experts I I have spoken to say there is basically no positive outcome for Andrew, whatever happens. So I spoke to a lawyer called Stephen Logel, who's an expert in cross-border litigation, and he was pessimistic at how this is going to play out for Andrew, whatever happens. But his options now are to fight the case or to settle it or to go to trial. I'm not sure that going to trial is a good option because even if he won, there's obviously a chance that things would come out. Whatever happens in the case, it's going to be bad. He can't be extradited to America for the case because it's a civil case. And even if he's found guilty, probably what he will get is a fine. But it is going to be bad for the royal family, whatever happens. Andrew is going to be interviewed on camera about extremely personal matters. And as everyone knows who saw the BBC interview, he doesn't do well under cross-examination. Probably his best option at this point is to try and settle out of court. And that is going to be hugely expensive. Figures of $5 million have been bandied around, and that seems easily probable. But it's very possible that Miss Jufre just wants to see him in court. So that even offering a settlement, which in itself will look bad, may not make this go away for him. And what about the the effects, the, the reflection this is on the royal family itself? The British royal family has centuries of dissolute princes behind it. Prince Andrew's ancestor, Edward VII, was so badly behaved as a prince that he was known as Dirty Bertie and Edward the Caresser. And at his coronation, he had a pew reserved for his mistresses, among them Winston Churchill's mother. So that prince's misbehave is not news to the royal family. What has changed is that they are now a media monarchy. So the focus is very, very intense. People can see photographs of the people involved and they know every damning detail. And it's also at a crucial time for the royal family because the Queen is celebrating her jubilee. It's 70 years since her accession. It may be the last final spectacle of her reign and everyone's worried about the coronation of King Charles because it's going to be a nervous moment for the royal family. The Queen was so popular, her reign was so stable. The last thing the royal family needs at a moment of instability is yet more instability coming from the ninth in line to the throne. And, and as you say, the royal family is, is sort of evolving itself to, to, a, to, a, to a media family, and this is a media mess. This is an absolute media mess. For the media monarchy, 
this is a disaster. It used to be that the Britons believed that the monarchy was put there by God. It said that a few years after her coronation, a third of Britons believed the Queen had been chosen by God. I mean, you would struggle to find people who would say that today. Now they rule by the tacit consent of the British people. And they're a utilitarian monarchy. They are there because people think they do more good than harm. A case like this starts to tilt the balance in the other way. And the royals now have to be seen as hardworking, do-gooding and meritocratic people. And Andrew is seriously damaging their reputation. And so given all of that, where do you think this leaves the monarchy at a tricky time with another jubilee coming up? Well... By taking this action against the son who's widely believed to be her favourite, the Queen has shown that the security of the crown trumps flesh and blood. In a sense, she could have gone further. She could have removed Andrew from the line of succession. But then once you start tinkering with hereditary order, the whole house of cards falls apart. It's either there and unchangeable or it's nothing. So the monarchy can't be seen to embrace Prince Andrew. They can't get rid of Prince Andrew. The only thing they can do is what they have done, and now they just have to sit and wait. Thanks very much for joining us, Catherine. Thank you for having me. Can supply chains be more sustainable without losing performance, efficiency, and resilience? It's possible with GEP. With strategy-managed services and AI-powered software, GEP helps hundreds of market-leading companies build sustainable supply chains that are cleaner, greener, and highly effective. Supply chains that are good for the planet and good for your business. GEP. Software. Strategy. Managed services. GEP.com. In August of 2020, Colonel Asimi Goita overthrew the democratically elected government of Mali, ousting President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita. Colonel Goita installed an interim government and promised fresh elections by February 2022. But then, in the middle of last year, he overthrew the very government he'd put in place. A coup within a coup, as French President Emmanuel Macron put it. Ce qui a été conduit par à nouveau les militaires putschistes est un coup d'État dans le coup d'État inacceptable qui appelle notre condamnation immédiate. Now the military regime says those elections it promised for next month should be delayed for five years. And that has prompted tough new sanctions from the Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS. Colonel Goita was defiant, calling on the Malian people to unite against ECOWAS. Coups are, unfortunately, an increasingly familiar concern among the 15 countries that make up ECOWAS. And the situation in Mali is particularly thorny. It's the site of waves of jihadism. It's played host to thousands of international peacekeeping troops. And as things have got messier, Russia has reportedly been taking on a larger and larger role in security. But the sanctions imposed by ECOWAS to bring more stability might do just the opposite. Well, they really are quite tough. ECOWAS had imposed some sanctions earlier, and the latter ones were quite specific on members of the coup leadership, if you like, and some of their family members. But now they've gone much further. Kinley Salmon is our Africa correspondent. ECOWAS member states uh, are closing their land and air borders with Mali. And that's a pretty big problem, uh, given Mali's a landlocked country that depends on 
ports in Senegal and the Ivory Coast in particular for its trade. The regional bloc has also stopped non-essential financial transactions and suspended Malian state assets in banks in the member states. Mali also shares a currency with much of ECOWAS, and the regional central bank has now also frozen Mali out of those financial markets, and this could have pretty significant effects. Mali's been planning to raise funds through a debt sale, and that's already seemingly been cancelled. Over time, this could, in fact, see the government uh, struggle to pay salaries and things like that. And what's been the response in Mali to these sanctions? So Colonel Goiter, you know, has reacted pretty angrily, you know, denouncing the sanctions. Uh, he's called for demonstrations in the street against them. But he's also indicated that the door might be ajar for further negotiation with ECOWAS. Um, he said, you know, even if we regret the illegitimate, illegal uh, and inhumane nature of, of some of these sanctions, he says that Mali remains open to dialogue with the regional bloc. But he's also closed borders on the Malian side in something of a fit of pique, given they'd already closed it on their side. And uh, the regimes, of course, recalled their ambassadors from all ECOWAS states. Uh, so it's certainly very tense. People in the street, there has been some sense of panic um, about you know, access you know, to supplies, to money and things like that. But of course, there's also been some support for the government for this uh, transitional regime uh, against ECOWAS. So it's a mixed picture, I think, on the ground. And what about more widely? What's the wider international community's response to all this? Well, France, which was the colonial power in Mali and has a significant number of its soldiers there fighting jihadists, has strongly backed the ECOWAS and measures. Uh, America and Britain, too, seem to have fallen in behind. And the broader reaction in, in Africa has also, for the most part, supported ECOWAS's tough uh, measures. Even Algeria to the north you know, has suggested that the military regime in Mali should negotiate with ECOWAS. Uh, the Kenyan representative at the United Nations backed the sanctions. There is one exception, the Guinean authorities, which also shares a border with Mali, where there was a coup uh, just last year, unsurprisingly suggested that ECOWAS was being unfair and announced they would keep their borders open, which importantly gives Mali access to a seaport. But perhaps the most striking reaction has come from China, and in particular Russia, who blocked the UN Security Council from supporting the ECOWAS sanctions. And, and why Russia in particular? So since the coup in August 2020, and particularly more recently, the Malian authorities and Russia have rather been cozying up together. Russia has long historical ties with Mali, and a number of the members of this junta, if you like, were trained in Russia. Russia recently delivered um, helicopters uh, to the country to help in their fight against jihadists. And now it would appear that hundreds of Russian mercenaries from Wagner Group are in Mali, at least that's what's being reported, though the Malian authorities still deny this. Uh, and so there's a, a clear sense of Russia perhaps moving in and trying to expand its influence in Mali, um, really at the expense of France and other Western partners. So this ties into the, the security situation we've talked about many times in Mali and then the Sahel more widely, that, that, that all of this uh, upends the, the security balance in the country. I mean, yes, it does have a big impact, although, of course, there really wasn't much balance in recent years to begin with. You know, jihadists linked to al-Qaeda and the Islamic State threatened swathes of Mali as well as Burkina Faso and Niger. France has had about 5,100 troops in the region, although it recently has been executing on plans to draw down perhaps as much as half of those. But there's also 13,000 peacekeepers from the UN in Mali and a large EU training mission. 
But the big question away for all of that that comes from these sanctions and the arrival, perhaps, of these Russian mercenaries is whether there'll be some change in the commitment from Western countries to trying to maintain uh, security in Mali. The seeming deployment of, of Russian mercenaries at the request of the traditional government has certainly angered some of those Western partners. And there's certainly discussions going on uh, in Paris and other European capitals about how to react. And I think it's fair to say that pulling some further troops out it remains on the table as a possibility. There's a lot uh, still to play out. But that security situation is not limited to Mali, as you say. How much are the events happening in Mali now affecting other countries in the region? Well, the, the security trouble in Mali is certainly spilling over into its neighbours. Um, Niger and Burkina Faso are in pretty deep trouble uh, from really the same jihadist insurgency. Uh, and that is also destabilising governments in the region. In Burkina Faso, uh, just on January 11th, the government said it had foiled a coup plot from disgruntled soldiers, quite possibly themselves angered at the, the significant losses that the military has been taking in fighting jihadists. So really these... This jihadist problem can quickly uh, turn into a problem of, of government stability and even of coups. And that's really what we've seen in Mali and what it looks like we, we might be at risk of seeing again soon in Burkina Faso. And as for these sanctions and, and the, the changing security situation, certainly within Mali, I mean, how do you see this playing out? It's, it's an unstable place made seemingly much more unstable. Well, for now, I mean, these tough sanctions from ECOWAS seem to be, to be holding. But that group is, if you like, showing a united front. But these are really very tough sanctions, and it seems quite possible that the Malian authorities uh, will go back to ECOWAS and propose some kind of a compromise to try to get some of these sanctions at least lifted a little bit. Uh, they might, for example, propose elections rather than five years now, perhaps two years from now. And at that point, you know, splits in this coalition that's backing the sanctions uh, could easily emerge. Um, there, are, there are some members of, of ECOWAS, such as Senegal, which are really heavily affected uh, by the border closures. Uh, and they're likely to push for some relief pretty quickly if they can. Uh, so I think there's a long way still to go to see uh, how all this plays out. Kinley, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Storytellers have long looked to the natural world to, well, to freak out fiction fans. From the mass bird attacks in Alfred Hitchcock's 1963 thriller, The Birds. That's the damnest thing I ever saw. I don't know, it seemed to swoop down at you deliberately. To the not-so-terrifying vegetarian goblins of Troll 2. They're eating her. And then they're going to eat me. Oh my God! The environment is a rich seam for thrills of all sorts, especially when things go wrong. And as humanity's relationship with and understanding of the environment have evolved, so have the storylines. Eco-horror is a genre of fiction which focuses on ecological fears, particularly the fear that nature is hostile towards humans. Miriam Balanescu writes about culture for The Economist. It draws on concerns over the damage humans inflict on nature, including pollution, draining resources and global warming. So what is it that separates what's called eco-horror from horror more generally? What makes it eco? 
an eco-horror. It's nature itself or a part of nature that is enacting the horror. So normally in response to some kind of harm that humans have inflicted on the environment. It's a relatively new term which became more frequently used around the late 2000s and it's described as an eruption in the natural world in response to human mistreatment by the critics Robin L. Murray and Joseph K. Human. Its first major wave was in the 60s and 70s and included the animal attack films such as The Birds. They bring beauty into the world. It is mankind, rather, who insists upon making it difficult for life to exist upon this planet. Frogs. Suppose nature gave a war and everybody came. Squirm and many more. The second wave included eco-dystopians such as The Day After Tomorrow. You recall what you said about how polar melting might disrupt the North Atlantic current? Yes. Well, I think it's happening. Which was adapted from Art Bell's and Whitley Strieber's thesis of 1999 called The Coming Global Superstorm, which envisioned what might happen following global warming. Interestingly, eco-dystopians were accused of finding the prospect of a dystopian future exciting and also accused of normalising ecological disaster rather than trying to encourage viewers to tackle the climate crisis. And, and any time we hear the prefix eco, we do think about the climate change movement and concerns that are relatively young, I suppose, compared to 1960s films about birds. Yeah, although global warming was a term first used in 1975 and an awareness of eco-horror as a genre is still relatively new. Eco-horror in literature stretches back all the way to the old English epic poem Beowulf, where creatures would emerge from marshes to feast on human flesh. You also see elements of eco-horror in medieval romance poems. For example, Gawain and the Green Knight, which was recently adapted into a film starring Dev Patel. That is why a knight does what he does. There's also an element of eco-horror in Gothic novels, such as Wuthering Heights or Dracula. And there's even a whole academic field of study on the eco-Gothic. So what about more recently? Are there new eco-horror films pushing the genre ahead? Lamb is the latest film to be included in the eco-horror genre. Which was selected for Best International Feature Film at the Academy Awards. And according to its director and co writer, Valdemar Johansson, it's about the kind of powerlessness of humanity in the face of nature. So it follows a farming couple who have recently lost a child, and at the beginning of the film, they're mourning for their loss. When they then kind of miraculously discover a half-human, half-lamb changeling in their sheep coats. Like a lot of new eco-horrors, this film moves at a much slower, meditative pace and also reflects a new international interest in the genre. And on that notion of evolution and the climate activism, I suppose, that has come with all of this awareness, it has a real political tinge to it. Have these films, has this genre come the same way with a sort of political edge? Um, yeah, definitely. Eco-horror is fundamentally about reminding humanity of its place. So the Anthropocene, which basically means that we're placing humans at the centre of our worldview, that's something that's being called into question. However, I do think 
with increased emphasis on the blurred boundaries between nature and humanity, especially with infections or, for example, half-animal, half-human hybrids and lamb. That line between humanity and nature is kind of being muddied and ultimately showing that the boundary between nature and humanity isn't so clear-cut. Then the conclusion to be drawn from that is that we're not only destroying nature, but we are destroying ourselves as well. Miriam, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell, Chris Impey, and Kim Giddleson. Our sound engineer is Will Rowe, with help this week from Sol Rivers. Our senior producers are Stevie Hertz, Sam Colbert, Sam Westron, and Jat Gill. Our producers are William Warren, Rory Galloway, and Alizé Jean-Baptiste, and assistant producer Avisoye Oshindairo. We'll all see you back here on Monday. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.